do not love the world or the things in the world. The world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. to 1 John chapter 4. We have three weeks left in this awesome sermon series. I hope it's been an encouragement to you as it has been to me. And so we last week looked at 1 John chapter 4 verses 1 through 6. We talked about what it means to, to test the spirits, to examine everything in light of scripture. And so uh, 7 comes after 6. So we should be starting in verse 7 today. However, uh, we studied 1 John 4, verses 7 through 12 last December at Christmas time. And I know you guys know that because you remember every sermon I've ever preached. I don't, I, I just know that. You remember every single word. So uh, I know you guys already have that sermon memorized. And so for that reason, I decided to go ahead and jump over that paragraph. We're going to study verses 13 through 21 this morning. And what we're going to do is, in case you missed it or in case you need a refresher, we're going to post that sermon I preached last December in the Coastal Gloucester Facebook page tomorrow. So you can study that if you want. But I also, as I studied this, I just loved verses 13 through 21 so much. I thought they deserve their own sermon. So we're going to look at verses 13 through 21 this morning of chapter 4. Now, one of the big themes in this passage of scripture is the theme of abiding in God. That word abide is used six times in these few verses. So this is a big theme here. And we're going to unpack what that word means in more detail in a couple of minutes. But for now, it's enough to know that the word abide simply means to dwell with someone, to dwell with someone. And as I reflected on that, even this morning, I was reflecting on how the entire story of the Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 could be seen as the story of how can God abide with his people. This is the story of how can God abide with his people. Let's go through the whole Bible in like two minutes. So in Genesis chapter one, God creates everything. He makes man in his image in order to reflect God and to live in relationship with him. It says in Genesis that God would walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, in the garden. They had immediate fellowship with God in his presence. Yet because of sin, they were exiled from Eden. They were cast away from the presence of God because of their sin. You fast forward, Israel is made into a nation, and God gives them instructions on how to build this tabernacle and eventually a temple. And this would be the place where God would manifest his presence among the people, where he would abide with them. But even then, there was the Holy of Holies, and only the high priest could go in only once a year and only on the Day of Atonement until Jesus came, who is God and man in one person, Emmanuel, God with us. And when he died on the cross, something happened in the temple. Does anyone remember what that was? The curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom, symbolizing that the way back into the presence of God, the way for us to abide with God had been opened once and for all. Then something else happens a couple of weeks later after Jesus ascends into heaven, and that's the day of Pentecost, where the Spirit was poured out on the church. 
And now there is no longer a physical location where God manifests his presence, but now we are the temple of God as the church, as believers, because the Holy Spirit lives within us. That is where we are now in redemptive history. But there is coming a day when Christ returns and makes all things new, where it says in Revelation 21 that the dwelling place of God is again with humanity, where we will dwell with God in his presence forever and ever. So don't you see that the entire goal of redemption is that we would abide with our creator, that we would dwell with our creator. We're going to talk today about what it means to abide in God and what the consequences are in our lives, because here's the main point. God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. So we should abide daily with God and overflow with love toward others. So if you have your Bibles, look with me at verse 13. We're going to read this text together, and then we'll jump in. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment that we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that a holy God such as you would desire to abide with sinners like us. We thank you, Lord, that your love is being perfected in us even now. So, Father, I pray that as we study your holy and inspired word this morning, that you would use it by the power of the Holy Spirit to transform us, to make us more like your son, Jesus. For we ask these things in his name. Amen. Well, just to get the context here, let's back up briefly to verse 12. Verse 12, it says, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. So no one has ever seen God, but when we love one another, he says God abides in us, that's one, and his love is perfected in us, that's two. Now look at the paragraph we just studied. Look at verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him, that's the first one. Then look at verse 17. By this is love perfected with us. So everything we just read, verses 13 through 21, John is unpacking the statement that he made in verse 12. He's unpacking the statement that if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So that is what's going on here structurally. So really there's two points to this sermon this morning, that God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Let's look at the first one. God abides in us. Verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him and him in us. As we've seen every single week, John's favorite question is, how do we know? How do we know 
How can we have assurance that this is true? He's saying, how can we know as followers of Christ that God abides in us? That's what he's answering in these first few verses. But before we jump into that, let's talk for a minute about what does it mean to abide? What does it mean to abide? This word literally means to remain or to dwell with someone. If you look at other scriptures where this word is used in a more literal sense, it's used of those who are staying overnight with someone, receiving their hospitality, spending the night in their home. And I think that's some beautiful imagery to this term when we think about it. To say that God abides with us, it's almost as if we are God's guests or we're staying in his home. We're receiving his hospitality. We are God's friends the mental imagery that I get with, we are abiding with God. We are dwelling with him. Jesus says something very similar, very famously in John chapter 15. Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. This speaks to our dependence on Christ. He's saying, you are as dependent on me as a branch is to the vine. And when you abide in me, you receive from me life and support and nourishment and the ability to be fruitful. We are only fruitful when we abide in Christ. But I want you to feel this tension that I feel between these two texts. You see, 1 John 4 talks about abiding in God as a fixed reality. Like, you're a Christian, you abide in God. Yet Jesus says it as a command. He's telling them, you need, as his followers, as his disciples, you need to abide in me. So is this simply a reality as a Christian that we abide in God? Or is this something that we are commanded to do? We need to abide in Christ. I think there's a sense in which both are true. If you're a Christian, you are abiding in God. The Holy Spirit does dwell within you. Objectively, that is true of you. You are united to Christ. God abides in you. Yet we are commanded day by day to abide with Jesus. Let me illustrate it by using marriage. I think it's the easiest illustration. When you say, I do, and you enter into this covenant relationship with another person, in a sense, you abide with them. Your lives are now joined together. You now have entered into a relationship where your lives are now connected. You are one flesh. Yet day by day, we abide with one another. We have both union through our relationship, but we daily enjoy communion with that person through our love and through our communication by spending time with them. It's the same in our relationship with Christ. If you receive Christ into your life as your Savior, you are united to him. You are abiding in him. Yet day by day, we are called to abide in Christ by spending time in the word, by spending time in prayer and communication, by worshiping him. And by doing that, we are enabled to bear much fruit. So now that we know what it means to abide, John gives us three ways that we can know that we abide in God. And the first is that we abide in God through the gift of the Spirit. Through the gift of the Spirit. Verse 13 says, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given to us as believers, as a gift. And of course, the Holy Spirit is God himself. He is the third person of the Trinity. So God gives us the very best gift possible. He gives us himself. He gives us himself. 
as it says in 1 Corinthians 6.19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? We are temples of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit dwells in us, and that is how we know that we abide in God. And let me now ask a further question. How do we know that the Spirit is in us? Let me give you two answers to that. I think it's both experiential and it's practical. First of all, it's experiential. It's what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, that the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and he prompts us to cry out, Abba, Father. Romans 5 says that God pours his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So there's this experiential reality where we sense the presence and the love of God through the Spirit within us, but it's also very practical. You know, Jesus in John chapter 3 compares the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the wind. You don't see the wind, but you see what the wind does. And that's often the case with the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We don't necessarily see the Holy Spirit, but we see what he's doing in us as he is changing us, that he is making us more like Christ. We often talk about the fruit of the Spirit. That is what the Spirit produces in our lives. You know them with me. You can say them. It's love joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Very good. You know, our girls have been watching this song where they've been trying to learn the fruit of the Spirit, and there's these hand motions, and it's really cute. So they're learning the fruit of the Spirit, and it's really good, but we're still working on it because I asked Leah recently, what's the fruit of the Spirit? She said strawberries. So as you can see, it is still a work in progress, but we are trying to learn the fruit of the Spirit. But the whole point is, how do I know that the Spirit is in me? Am I becoming more loving? Am I becoming more joyful, more at peace, more patient, ouch, more self-controlled? All of these things, that's how I know that the Spirit is at work in my life, that He is producing these things. So we abide in God through the gift of the Spirit. But next, we abide in God through the gospel. We abide in God through the gospel. Look with me at verse 14. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. John is saying we, that's John and the eyewitnesses. They're saying we have seen this. We have seen this. We are eyewitnesses to Christ. We have seen and now we testify or we bear witness that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Now, of course, that does not mean that everyone in the world will be saved. That's the false teaching of universalism. We have to receive Christ as Savior in order for his work to be um, applied to us. But for Jesus to be the Savior of the world means that he is the only Savior in the world, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that, that Christ is the only Savior. But for him to be the savior of the world means that all kinds of people from all over the world, from every tribe, tongue, and nation will benefit from Christ being savior. I love when this title is used of Christ in John chapter 4, after Jesus' famous conversation at the well with the Samaritan woman. And this is how it goes. This is the follow-up to that conversation. John 4, many Samaritans from that town believed in him. Because of the woman's testimony, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. 
Even the Samaritans, those that the Jews despised, are now saying, this is the Savior of the world. He is the Savior of the world. But then verse 15 gives us more information about who Jesus is. It says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So first, he's the Savior of the world, that he came into this world to save people. But now he is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, that he is God in the flesh. And he says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God knows that God abides in him. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. How does God abide in us? It begins with the gospel. It begins with confessing that Jesus is the Son of God, with believing that he is the Savior of the world. Very simply, the gospel is that Jesus is God. He is God in the flesh that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, paying the penalty for sins that we deserve to pay, that Jesus bodily rose from the grave three days later so that when we repent of our sins, we believe the gospel, we receive Christ into our life as Savior, we are saved. That is how we abide in God, through the gospel. But lastly, John shows us that we abide in God through abiding in love. We abide in God through abiding in love. Verse 16, so we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. We know that we abide in God when we are abiding in love because God is love. Let me give you a hint about Bible study. Sometimes the shortest statements in the Bible are at the same time the most simple and the most profound. Most simple and the most profound. You can tell a small child, God is love, and I think they can get the idea, but that is an incredibly profound statement in reality, that, uh, that what we call love is a reflection of the very nature and character of God. That God is love. And so when we love God and we love others, then we are abiding in God. We demonstrate that we know him. So here's the deal. We've talked about how do we know that God abides in us? When we believe the gospel, when the Holy Spirit lives within us, and when we're loving God and loving others. That is demonstration that we are abiding in God. But let me now ask a follow-up question as we apply this. Are you daily abiding in Christ? Are you daily abiding in Christ? It's a reality but it's also a relationship that day by day we are abiding in Christ. We do that as we spend time with him, as we spend time in the word and time in prayer and time in worship and time with other followers of Christ. Are you abiding in him? Because here's the deal. You will become like who you abide with. You will become like who you abide with. There's the cliche that we tell teenagers all the time and we should continue to because it's very true. Show me your friends and I'll show you what? Your future. Right, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. We could even say, show me who you're abiding with and I will show you what you will look like. The more that we abide with Christ, the more we will begin to look like him. In Acts, they said of the apostles, they could tell that they had been with Jesus. Can other people look at your life and say, I can tell that you've been with Jesus. I can tell that you've been abiding with Christ. 
day by day, we need to be abiding in Christ because Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. That means, man, I can do nothing of spiritual or eternal significance unless I'm abiding in Christ. Nothing. Are you daily abiding in Christ? But the second thing I want to show us this morning is what it means that love is perfected in us. That love is perfected in us. Remember verse 12, right? He says, if we love one another, God abides in us. That's the first half of the sermon. But next, and his love is perfected in us. That word perfected, it could also be translated matured or brought to completion, brought to its intended goal or purpose. God's love being perfected in us means that God's love is bringing, is coming to its full expression in us, being brought to its completion, its purpose. And he's going to show us how we can know that God's love is perfected in us. Verse 17, let's read it together. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment in this world. So first of all, perfect love leads to confidence on judgment day. Perfect love leads to confidence on judgment day. But before we can even talk about what that means, I think we need to have an understanding of what is judgment day. And I think to do that, there's a lot of scriptures we could go to, but I think the most vivid and frankly terrifying is Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. So let's read these verses together. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was being written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. It's heavy stuff. Right? It says that there is coming a day where God will be on his throne and even earth and sky will try to flee away. And he says, we will all stand before God and we will be judged according to what we have done. Jesus even says in Matthew 12, 36, that we will be judged for every careless word that we've ever spoken. And I don't know about you, but my trial is going to be pretty long because I've said a lot of careless words says, we will be judged according to what we have done. When we read that passage, and if we think about that for more than five seconds, the natural reaction to that is fear. The natural reaction to that is fear. Of course it is. And yet John says, you can face that day with confidence. How? That's what we're going to talk about in just a minute. But listen, I want to clear up one thing. It says twice here in Revelation that we're judged according to what we have done. I want to make sure I'm clear. That does not mean that salvation is by works. Salvation is by faith, but our works demonstrate the genuineness of our faith. This is what one commentator said. The issue is not salvation by works, but works as the irrefutable evidence of a person's actual relationship with God. Salvation is by faith, but faith is inevitably revealed by the works it produces. I've heard it said this way. Your works don't save you, but they tell on you. 
They are the evidence that our faith is genuine. So given this reality, given that we will be judged on the basis of our works and our words, and we will give an account for it on the day of judgment, how can we face that day with confidence? It's the second half of verse 17. So that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Here's the key. Because as he is, that's Jesus, because as Jesus is, so also are we in this world. As Jesus is, so also are we in this world. He's speaking positionally. He's saying that because we are united to Christ, because Christ is our Savior, Christ is our representative, because Christ has died and Christ is risen, now what is true of Jesus is true of me. Because I'm united to Christ. I want you to hear something this morning. This is mind-boggling. On the day of judgment, you can be no more condemned than Jesus can if you belong to him. Because you're united to him. Your lives are now joined together forever when you place your faith in him. So that means on the day of judgment, you are as secure as Jesus is. Isn't that incredible? You know, the Bible says that we are not waiting to be justified in the future. We are justified now. We are declared righteous before the throne room of heaven now. So we can face that day with confidence knowing that when we stand before the judge, it's not going to be to be shamed. It's going to be to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. So in verse 18, it says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. This fear that he's talking about is fear of punishment. It's fear of being condemned on judgment day. It is fear of being ultimately lost on the day of judgment. And he's saying there is no fear in love, but this perfect love, this love of God within us casts out that fear. This confident assurance that we belong to Christ and we are deeply loved by him, it drives out that fear of punishment. Because we know in Scripture that there's a good fear and there's a bad fear, right? There's a godly fear of the Lord, an awe, a reverence, a respect for the Lord that is the very beginning of wisdom. But there's another kind of fear that is not good. That's what John is talking about here. This is the fear of punishment. This is the dread, the cowering before God that is fear that we will be punished. We used to have a dog named Rocky. He was a good dog. Uh, And so he but he had this bad habit where he would chew up his dog beds. Uh, And we went through so many, like, I don't know why we kept buying them. Like, because he kept doing the same thing over and over again. We'd buy him a dog bed and we'd come in the next day and it's, there's just stuffing everywhere and it's terrible. And every time he did it, sure enough, he would come to us, tail between his legs, snout down, looking so miserable and so discouraged. And I don't think it's because he was feeling deeply convicted for his sin. Uh, I think it's more, there's this dread of punishment. There's this fear that I am about to be punished for what I did, and I just got caught. That is what he's talking about here. We are to have a godly reverence, fear of the Lord. But this kind of cowering before God with our tail between our legs, that's not what God wants for us. He wants us to be able to face even Judgment Day with confidence because of Christ. Let me give you a story about a man who is able to do just that. 
I just finished listening to a really great audio book. It's called Amazing Grace, and it's the story of John Newton. So John Newton, for those of you who don't know, he actually wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. He lived in the 18th century in, in England. John Newton was a young man, was raised in a Christian home, but he came to abandon Christianity, and he became a sailor. And while on a ship, he lived this very sinful and licentious lifestyle. Even among the sailors, he had a bad reputation for his drunkenness, for his blasphemy, for his foul language. So he made the other sailors look good. You can get a picture in your mind of how messed up this guy was. He had aspirations to be a wealthy captain on a slave ship. He eventually became very active in the slave trade. But on one voyage, he came to a place of fear about the judgment of God. And he read in a book, we are all sinners. And one day we will all be called upon to account for our actions. And John Newton started to think about the day of judgment that we just studied. And he was filled with dread and fear. He actually sunk into a deep depression and despair because he thought there is no hope for me because of what I have done. And he believed that if he died, he would go to hell. In the midst of the, this depression, he was asleep one night and he was woken up in the middle of the night to a wild storm. And the sailors thought the ship was about to sink. And as I mentioned, he was such a notorious sinner that the captain started calling him Jonah, implying that maybe if they throw him overboard, they'll get out of this thing. That's how bad he was. And for the first time in his life, John cried out for God's mercy and the ship was saved. John gave his life to Christ a couple of years later, he left the ship, he became a pastor, and eventually he started preaching against the slave trade. He started preaching against it, and if you read the history of slavery in England, he was instrumental in bringing about the abolition of slavery in England, all because he had experienced God's amazing grace. But John's legacy is someone who went from dread, fear of judgment day, to now experiencing amazing grace where he could say, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. So let me ask you this question this morning. Do you have that same confident assurance that John Newton had? If the ship of your life were to sink today, where would you wake up? Would it be in heaven with the Lord or in hell? Do you have confidence for judgment day? Let me tell you, as we've seen in this text, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. And if God could save a John Newton, he can certainly save you. Run to Christ today. Don't leave here today without having this confidence for the day of judgment that can be yours today in Christ. But the next point this morning is that perfect love starts with God. It starts with God. It originates with God. Verse 19 is well-loved and profound. It says, we love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. Our love for God is always a response to his prior love for us. He loved us before we could even know who he was, before he even created us. Let me give you three different ways that God loved us first. First of all, God loved you first in your conversion. When he saved you, he loved you first. One of my favorite modern worship songs is called All I Have is Christ. You guys know it, but the first verse, I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. 
The sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And here's the key line. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. That's where we were. We are dead in our sins. We were hostile to God. Yet God loved us and he opened our blind eyes and he drew us to himself. Ephesians says, even when we were dead in our sin, he made us alive together with Christ. He loved us first when he saved us. But let's go back 2,000 years before that because he loved us first at Calvary. We're on the cross. Romans 5, 8 says that God demonstrated his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us first on the cross where he gave his life for ours. But can we go back even further than that? Yes, we can. We can go all the way back to eternity. Before the world was created, God set his love on his people. I want you to get this thought in your head. God is eternal and God is love. So if you are in Christ, God has always loved you from all eternity. Listen to what it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, before he created anything, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, meaning as an expression of his overwhelming and incredible love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. We love because he first loved us, and he loved us first, even in eternity. So here's how I would apply this this morning. If you're a Christian, listen, God loved you first. And why is that encouraging? Because if he loved you first, what on earth makes you think he's ever going to stop loving you? You are secure in his hands. You are his child, and he is never going to let you go. The last point this morning is this, that perfect love overflows toward others. Perfect love overflows toward others. Verse 20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. I wish John was more clear sometimes, don't you? It's confusing, you know, just don't understand what he's saying. Need to know the Greek, no. If you say you love God and you hate your brother, you're a liar. Why? For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment that we have, this is the commandment that we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. He's very straight up. He's saying, he's calling a spade a spade. You say you love God. You don't love your brother. You're lying. And he gives the reason for it very simply. Because you can't love a God who you can't see if you can't even love the people that you do see. Let me give you a few reasons why this is true. First of all, because people are made in the image of God. What sense does it make to say, I love God, but I hate his image? I've heard it said before, it would be like going into a palace and declaring your love and your allegiance to the king. Then on your way out of the palace, you take a sledgehammer to his statue. If we love God, we must love the people who are made in his image. And spoiler alert, that's everybody. But next, what about Christians more specifically? 
Well, the church is called the bride of Christ. What sense does it make to say to Jesus, I love you, but I hate your bride? If you said that to me, Pastor Nate, I love you, but I hate your wife, I would reject your love because we're a package deal. We're one flesh. To hate her is to hate me. But next, the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. God lives in that person. So to say, I hate my brother or sister in Christ is to hate someone that God lives in. Finally, as if we needed one more, but I think we do, and this one might be the clincher. Christians are united to Christ. Our lives are joined together with Christ. So you cannot hate a fellow Christian without hating Christ. Here's why. Before he was Paul, when he was still Saul of Tarsus, and he's on the way to go and persecute Christians on the Damascus Road, Jesus knocks him off his horse, and then he looks up. What does Jesus say to Saul? He doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting Christians? He doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? What does he say? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus is saying, for you to persecute these Christians is to persecute me. So for us to hate a brother or sister in Christ is to hate Christ himself. Jesus said in Matthew 27, 22, 37 to 39, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. That means it's similar to it. It corresponds to it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, these are not two unrelated, totally separate commandments. I can do one of them and not do the other one. But rather, loving God is a way that you love your neighbor. And loving your neighbor is a way that you love God. They are inherently connected. They are inherently similar. We cannot compartmentalize our spiritual lives by saying, I will love God and I will hate my brothers. We cannot do it. Because perfect love, love that has been brought to completion in us, will overflow toward other people. Guys, I feel like I've preached that message every week since the middle of May. Every verse in 1 John comes back to love one another. And you know why he keeps repeating it? Because it's so hard. <laughs> Anybody else? It is so hard because we're sinned against and we don't want to forgive. Anger feels better. I don't want to serve you. I want to serve me. I want to gratify my flesh. I don't want to be kind to you when you've been unkind to me. But what Jesus shows us is this is the way that we love God, that perfect love overflows toward others. And it shows that we abide in him when we abide in love. So as the worship team and the prayer teams come forward now, I want to leave you with one final thought. How can we love when loving is hard? How can we love people if we find this person difficult to love? Well, I want to quote our friend John Newton one more time. I already told you his story earlier in this sermon, but he also is very famous for writing letters. He would get uh, questions from Christians who were seeking advice, and he would write them letters to give them encouragement and advice. And there was one person who wrote to him who was in an argument and a dispute with a fellow Christian and he was asking for help on how he should resolve it. And this is what John Newton wrote. I think this is golden. He wrote, If you account him, that is the person you're disagreeing with, a believer, 
Though greatly mistaken in the subject of debate between you, the words of David to Joab concerning Absalom are very applicable. Deal gently with him for my sake. The Lord loves him and bears with him. Therefore, you must not despise him or treat him harshly. The Lord bears with you likewise and expects that you should show tenderness to others from a sense of the much forgiveness that you need yourself. In other words, how can you love someone that's difficult to love? Love them for God's sake. Love them because God loves them. So that way, by loving them, you are loving God. And this next line is brilliant. He says, in a little while, you will meet in heaven. That is you and this person that you despise. In a little while, you will meet in heaven, and he will then be dearer to you than the nearest friend you have upon earth is to you now. Anticipate that period in your thoughts, and though you may find it necessary to oppose his errors, view him personally as a kindred soul with whom you are to be happy in Christ forever saying you're going to be with them in heaven forever. And on that day, no matter how you feel about them now, they're going to be dearer to you than your best friend is right now. When we keep these things in mind, it empowers us to be able to choose to love God by loving others, no matter what they've done. This is how we know that we abide in him. This is how we know that his love is perfected in us. When we can love even when it hurts, even when it's hard. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we love you. We thank you, Lord, that we, we can even say, I love you. And we know that that's only possible because you loved us first. That in your great love, you set your love upon us in eternity. That you have sent your son to rescue us. That you have drawn us to yourself. Lord, we thank you so much for your, that you abide in us by your Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, that day by day, we would abide in you that your love would continually be perfected in us so that we can overflow with the love for those around us. We give you all the glory today in Jesus' name.